and welcome to Walkley Talks. I'm Claire Fletcher from The Walkleys. Today's podcast is about politics and the press. When it comes to our democracy, journalism has a vital role to play in interpreting policy and keeping the bastards honest. You're about to hear from editors and political journalists about how they report on the corridors of power, from local councils to state governments and the federal parliamentary press gallery. This talk was recorded at the State Library of Western Australia on November 2nd, as part of our journalism festival in Perth called Shining a Light on the Truth. I know that we live in Australia, which is, of course, a bastion of democracy. We're not in Iran or Russia or North Korea. On the surface, the media looks completely free to do what's required to keep the bastards honest. We're free to ensure the public has all that's required to feel completely informed about the political class, who pulls their strings, who funds their political parties, who is paying for access to cabinet ministers, uh, what is being discussed behind closed doors, and to further the interests of big business, for example. Well, that's not really right, is it? That's quite wrong. Here in WA, for example, journalists have no idea who is donating to political parties until the antiquated system that's currently in place allows access to that information, one year after the cash was paid. For me, this is the starting point in reminding the public that we still have a long way to go in keeping politicians accountable. Not a year after they were elected, but in real time, day to day. The McGowan government, for example, committed to a policy before the 2017 election that they would promise to make political donations publicly available online in real time rather than yearly. It has done absolutely nothing to back that promise up. It has not mentioned the policy since winning office, apart from balking when questioned by reporters about the issue. Think about this. If political parties were genuine in saying the public had a right to know which business or wealthy individual was funding their activities, all they would have to do is detail a political donation on their website. Simple. There is absolutely no need for any legislative or regulatory change to make that happen. For example, if property developer Nigel Satterley donated $50,000, it could be added to a register on Labor's website. If billionaire Andrew Forrest gave $100,000 to the Liberal Party, they could list it easily on their website. Am I being naive about this, or is it that easy? but they won't do it, and of course we know why. Democracy and journalism go hand in hand. Political journalism helps voters understand who they're voting for and what the government is doing. It should interpret policy and keep the people in power accountable. But I've just given you a straightforward example of why politicians let themselves down and add to the mistrust of the public and cynicism of the media. The traditional role of the media is up against it right now. Has been for quite a while, in fact. Fewer reporters through rounds and rounds of redundancies or just depleted because good reporters have decided to walk away. Our profession has been diluted by the digital age, largely sidelined by people's view that everything they need by way of news is at their smartphone-addicted fingertips. This is the era when the reach of Twitter can easily be used to deflect from or distort the truth, even by the leader of the free world, or make that especially by the leader of the free world. So really the challenges are stark, the debate is crucial, so let's talk about it with journalists and editors on a local and federal level. 
Nathan Hondras, over there to your right, is the political journalist for WA Today and covers anything that moves on local, state and federal scenes, as long as it's west of the Nullarbor, of course. He's worked on the inside of government and communications. He headed into regional journalism for Fairfax Media, where he was a senior reporter and editor for the Mandra Mail. He moved to the metros at the beginning of 2018. He writes extensively on state and federal politics and was last year a finalist for the Beck Prize for political reporting at WA's Media Awards. This year, he has been shortlisted for the prestigious Arthur Lovkin Award for Excellence in Journalism for his reports uncovering the links between WA's political and business leaders and the People's Republic of China. Lani Scar, on my right immediately, is the federal political editor for the West Australian newspaper. She's worked in the federal parliamentary press gallery for close to a decade and covered everything from immigration business issues around women, families, education and cyber security. Lani was a finalist, and everyone can remember this of course, for the scoop of the year in 2015 when she broke the international exclusive on Barnaby Joyce's threat to euthanise Johnny Depp's dogs, pistol and boo. Who could forget it? Um, Lani is also a mum of four, so I don't know how she does it, Mum of four, including three-year-old triplets. She has contributed to a best-selling book, The Motherhood, along with Sarah Harris, Jessica Rudd, M. Rossiano and Claire Bowditch, and is writing her own memoir of her time in foster care. So she brings a lot of real experience to the job. Lenore Taylor is the editor of Guardian Australia. Over almost three decades of political reporting, she has won two Walkley Awards and twice won the Paul Lynham Award for Excellence in Press Gallery Journalism. She was the Australian Financial Review's Europe correspondent in the early 2000s and she authored the book Shitstorm Inside Labor's Darkest Days, which examined the Rudd's government's response to the global economic crisis. I'm going to go and take a seat over there in a sec, but I just want to start with this statement. So this is what I want you to have a think about. No matter where you are working as a journalist in the world, you will likely find a government fixated with devising, manipulating and controlling the messages and narrative that they want voters to believe and accept. I'll start with Lenore. Do you think that's a fair summation of what political reporters are up against? It probably is a fair summation of what we're up against and I think that's the challenge. It's up to us to convince readers that they should trust us to contextualise and hold accountable and fact-check and analyse and report and that that role that we play is far more valuable and far more dependable and the bedrock of democracy, not the direct information that looks slick, the little videos and the things that they get directly from politicians. But I think it's incumbent upon us to demonstrate to readers and viewers and listeners the worth of what we do in order for them to continue to trust us to fulfil that role. It falls on us to demonstrate to them that they should be paying attention to our analysis and our reporting and our fact-checking rather than just listening to the direct feeds they get from political parties. Jump in any time anyone wants to say anything, but on that, <laughs> is it easier for them to do that in this day and age where they've got access to digital media Absolutely. and so on? And I they mean, can control the message much So I read something more. that the journalism professor in the US, Jay Rosen, wrote the other day where he said that about one-third of voters in the US are in a closed news circuit where they get their news from Trump, about Trump, from Trump, or Trump's brooking websites, and that that closed circuit is completely immune to journalism. It doesn't matter what the New York Times writes, what they fact-check, what scoops they break, because that closed circuit is 
believes what they're told, which is that the New York Times is fake news, that they can't be trusted, and they're kind of lost to journalism in a way. That's highly dangerous for democracy and it's terrible for us and we have to demonstrate our bona fides so that that doesn't happen or doesn't continue to happen. And the majority of people are getting are time poor these days, so they are only going to a few sources for their news. And sometimes that is on social media. Sometimes it is predominantly on Facebook or Twitter that they're just getting their news. So it's not like they're going on to a reputable news site. It's so interesting you got onto Trump so early because from my <laughs> experience in political communications, I have to say that political parties have been looking for probably about 20 years for a way to circumvent traditional media or new journalists. Well, how it started by the direct radio interview, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So they've been working at how to get around us and get a message directly to voters without that kind of process that we put information through. I can remember in the 2000s at the time when the West Australian was really pushing up hard against the Gallup and then the Carpenter governments, to the extent where we had attorney generals who, who would walk away from press conferences if a West Australian journalist would turn up. There was a lot of work done about how do we actually circumvent this? How do we actually get around these journalists, get these messages across directly to voters? And Trump's just done it beautifully. He now has mastered that through the use of social and digital media in a way that Australian politicians haven't quite got to yet but are working very steadily towards. But I do think there's an important point to make about that Trumpification process, which is that you know that we're all competitive and media organisations can criticise one another or take different views on things, but I really firmly believe we have to hold the line against the very concept of fake news because if it's fake, it's not news. And by allowing that terminology to take hold, to become something that people accept, it's undermining what we do, what we all do. Mm. So I, I really think we've got to, whatever our differences are, whatever our differences of opinion are, we have to really protect our profession from that term, which is just, it delegitimizes what we do. Well, on that, are they working harder at that in Canberra in terms of sort of circumventing the mainstream media, for example? Are they trying? Or are they still quite happy to to deal with mainstream media as much as possible? I think we're seeing, you know, an increase in the number of social media videos they're putting out. You know, I think they are increasingly trying to directly connect with voters and circumvent us. But, you know, I think also increasingly they are... I've noticed, anyway, coming to us very late with stories. So, and I don't know whether anyone else has experienced this, but coming to us at four o'clock in the afternoon and saying, I've got this story for tomorrow, so that there's less time to actually analyse the full data that they might be giving us or, you know, ask more questions or... And I certainly have noticed that more. How do we deal with that as journalists, the drop? It's been coming up in WA in the last couple of weeks because there's been a bit of banter between Seven West and Nine in terms of, you know, the media strategy of the government and so on. The drop, as it's known, is an issue and becoming an issue, and people probably don't even realise this, but government, people in government at the moment in WA are frustrated that if they give a drop to Seven West Media, they believe that Nine has a view not to follow it as vigorously and not to report it. And the argument's been had, well... We don't wake up every morning seeing what your media strategy is. If it's in the West, we don't sort of wake up thinking, well, how are we going to follow that? We, we go off and find other stories, and it's getting frustrating. So how, how do you, Lenore, with all your experience, I mean, the drop is always an issue, isn't it? If you're dependent on a drop, you're not doing your job. And it never bothered me. I mean, you know, the 
conservative governments give the drops to the Oz or the Daily Telly. Yeah. You know, always did, probably always will. I didn't care. I don't care. My team in Canberra don't get drops. I can't remember a time when they did. And it doesn't bother me as an editor at all because they're not there to take something on a platter that a political party or a leader gives them. They're there to find out what that person doesn't want our readers to yeah. know. I mean, we report stories properly. We report what's happened. But I think the drop... You know, I don't think we should be dependent on drops. I don't think we should care about drops. And the one thing I really always had a huge issue with was when parties would come to you and say, here's a drop, but it's on the condition that you can't go and seek comment. I don't think we should do that at all. So you think we should just stop that? It's an issue for all of us. You people, know, I mean, are people broadly aware of the idea of a drop? So I what mean, happens in... You know, you get, a, you get the phone call from the government and they say, I've got, I've got a great story for you. It might be interesting, sometimes it is, but... It's, but it's exclusive, it's yours. It's yours, it's exclusive to you, but, you know, you can't talk to anyone else about it until it appears in your publication the next But week. I think you can still get a level of balance in the story without revealing the full details to the people that you're going to to get balance. Sure, so you can get if, context. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that is important. I think just reporting a story or a drop that comes to you without any level of context or any comment that might be, you know, opposing the concept of what the drop is about, I think that's not the way that you should formulate a story. But I would be really concerned if my reporters were dependent on drops. Oh, mm. 100%. Yeah, I mean, it's, like I say, it's, it's always an issue between rival publications and, and rival broadcasters as to how that story appeared, why it appeared and why it wasn't sort of offered as an all-in. And that's kind of happening more and more. And that's one way that certainly here in WA we're seeing that the government are keen to control it and then, believe it or not, complain about it if it doesn't get the same coverage in another publication or another network, they will then complain about it. So that's just something that I've personally observed, particularly in the last few months, that it's becoming more and more of an issue. Can I just get into the bubble? Because I've never worked in Canberra. You hear about the bubble, you think it's there. I mean, you get a sense that journos sort of doorstop politicians in the morning and then, you know, go and have dinner with them at night. I mean, we'll just, just give people here a flavour of, of a day-to-day -day life in Canberra in terms of whether it's all hostile or whether you're all in the same bubble. So I worked there for 33 years <coughs> until three years ago when I became editor and I think the answer is yes and it exists and it doesn't exist. So in, you know, sometimes you see series on television or something and that happens, you know, the journalists are in Parliament House and then they're all at dinner. Most of the long-term press gallery journalists have mortgages and kids, they spend their weekends going to kids sport and bunnings like everybody else in the country. <laughs> they don't spend, you know, they have normal lives but that said... Yes, Canberra is better off than many places in the country and you probably don't meet in your general daily life as broad a spectrum of people as you would if you lived in some other places. That's true. But I actually think the bubble thing is a broader problem for the profession as a whole in that by and large, and there are many exceptions, we get the same kind of people coming into newsrooms and I think that answer not just in Canberra, but more generally, is to have a much broader diversity of journalists, not just cultural and ethnic, but socioeconomic. A broader range of people telling stories will mean that we tell stories relevant to a broader range of readers. And I know in the UK, there was a lot of soul-searching after the Grenfell fire, because that 
tower block was right near where a lot of journalists lived, but they lived in Kensington, not in the tower block, and the problems in that tower block had been known for a really long time and discussed in the community that lived in the tower block, but no journalists had any in with that community. No journalists were part of that community or knew about that community, so nobody had written the story. I think diversity more generally is a question we should be asking rather than about a Canberra bubble. I would agree that it would be great to see more diversity in our newsrooms. And, you know, the reality is in Canberra, the way that you do get stories is by networking. You do have to go out to dinner with the politicians at night. So, you know, for me, I'm in at work at 6 or 6.30 in the morning and then I'm still working, essentially, until 10 or 11 at night because I am out to dinner with contacts or politicians or whatever. So, and you do have to be hard on them in a press conference and, and hold them to account. And, you know, just because you've had dinner with them the night before, it doesn't mean that you're not going to ask them the hard questions at a press conference the next morning. You have to still do your job, but you do have to have a relationship with them. Because I notice how politicians in Canberra, when, when they've decided it's a bubble issue, They'll make sure they keep saying it over and over again. You know, it's amazing what they pick on. Well, that's just a bubble issue. No one's and interested. And that's just yeah. a way to avoid yeah. answering yeah. the question. I mean, if you look at multiple instances <coughs> where the Prime Minister has done that recently, where he didn't want to talk about, you know, the pastor that was invited, Brian Houston, to the, or they wanted to invite to the White House state dinner, you know, he dismisses it as gossip or as a bubble issue or whatever. And that's just a way to try and avoid answering the question. So, you know, which is frustrating, but you have to keep pursuing it and asking the questions. It, it used to be the elite. How, how it had the elites, you know, it's just a question for the elites. Yeah, it's the same device. And, but there is, you do notice that in Perth there's a West Perth bubble. You know, there is advisors and politicians and, and journalists who tend to talk to each other around Parliament House in West Perth. And we ran a story this week that was about cost of living in the suburbs. And we thought, we're going to cover this without talking to a politician. We're going to look at some statistics and go out into the northern suburbs and talk to people about what they're experiencing. It did far better for us than any, you know, politician A said this, the opposition responded with, with something so else. So interesting. We had a similar experience. I wanted to commission stories about Newstart and, and people living on Newstart. Mm -hmm. And so... I sort of thought, like, we really should hear from people rather than write about people. And we got, I think, seven people living below the poverty line to write for us for a year. And it probably shows my prejudice when I commissioned those stories. I thought, look, it's important to do, but they might not be so well read. Mm -hmm. And actually, that Life on the Breadline series is one of the best read things ever. People just... Mm -hmm. And yeah. I think it was because it was hearing directly from people that we don't usually hear from. For you, Lenore... Hits versus subscribers, how do you balance that out in terms of the sort of the, the website's, you know, legitimacy, the website's future, the survival of, you know, the digital form of media for you? I mean, you know, because a lot of websites are purely about the hit. So the beauty, if you like, of our model of voluntary reader revenue is that it aligns your financial rewards with the best journalism that you can do. You've got to inspire people to give you money where they don't have to, they can read it for free. And so, yeah, we want reach. We want to reach as many readers as we possibly can, but we want to reach them with the kind of journalism that's going to inspire them to voluntarily give us money. So, actually, there's not a conflict for me without sort of giving away everything. But how is that going? I mean, just so people understand. 
So we've made a profit the last two years. We now employ 120 people in Australia where there were zero employed by Guardian Australia six years ago. We've just expanded. I've employed 12 new people in the last two months and 50% of our revenue is from reader revenue and 50% from advertising. What about you, Nathan, in WA today? I mean, you're paywall. Yeah, we're mm. probably a... Like all nine publications, it's a mix of paywall and you know a certain number of stories you can read for free. So I think it's a it's a similar style really. I mean, people can access it without paying for it. That's true. People know how to do it. But the idea is to offer something of value to a reader that's going to be more important to them than say something that is pretty cheap and easy on Facebook. So again, it's like what Lenore says, demonstrating that you have something that's of value to ordinary people that would come across your website. I just want to know from your point of view, media training with politicians, is it a thing? Is it becoming more of a, of a craft for them that they're being trained exactly how to deal with the media? I think their advisors, you know, they have a whole team of advisors that do that every day, you know, before they go out and talk about an issue, they're strategising how they're not going to respond to a certain question. So, yeah, I think that that definitely is happening and, and has always, always happened. Always, yeah, to, to a degree. Extent. I think it actually doesn't serve, I mean, it certainly doesn't serve us well, but it doesn't serve them well either because they come across as inauthentic, you know, Readers and listeners can hear that they're just parroting answers that they've workshopped. And, you know, it's when you then hear, I don't know, someone like John Houston or Paul Keating give an interview and talk in sentences that they made up themselves, it's like this amazing <laughs> relief that, you know, that because you just... Because nobody really does that anymore. Well, and the other day, the morning media brief was accidentally emailed out to Canberra journalists. That's right. So yeah. that every morning, the politicians get a brief from the Prime Minister's press office, which says, you know, these are the issues of the day, and these are exactly how you should respond to them with, you know, specific quotes. So it was interesting to see then who exactly came out and parroted those lines. But, you know, some people that I certainly spoke to said that they weren't happy with that level of control. And, you know, it, I think increasingly there is, you know, the, the Prime Minister's office are trying to control the message more and more and there is frustration about that. As someone who's trained politicians in how to mm. not answer questions, yeah, it's like when you see it done well... Like Howard was the master at it. I've, there's never been a, a better media manager for an interview than Howard. He had maybe six or seven phrases that he would begin an answer with, which would allow him <coughs> to quickly turn any answer into anything that he wanted to say. Like, Gary, that's a very interesting question, but what I think mm. everybody here really, really wants to know about is all the great things I had for breakfast. Mm. Yeah. So it's really frustrating. And I've seen Gary just hammer politicians over and over and over until probably you get sick of it because I think it's incredibly frustrating to see because they, they will just not crack. But sometimes, sometimes it blows back on yeah. the journalist. Could, yeah. You know, like, obviously we had that journalist, Jono, in the election campaign that was completely hammering, pretty sure it was Shorten that he was hammering. Yeah. And, you know, in some respect, that played out well for him. But in other circumstances, it doesn't... It looks like you're too aggressive. Mm. You keep coming back at them with the same question, but, you know, when they're not answering, what else are you supposed to do? So you did work inside government. Has anyone else worked inside government out of us right here? No, so, OK. So no, I'm, I'm reformed. It's on you now, Nathan. Yeah. Are we right to be very cynical about yes. the discussions that go on at comms yes. level about how Absolutely. things are going to play today? Absolutely. Uh, Can you, know, you give it, us an insight? So, uh, like... 
before I say, before the Premier is turning up to a, a media conference, he would kind of know what he wanted to say in terms of the issue that the, the press conference was about. He would also be briefed on any contentious issues and he would have workshopped through what he's going to say or what he's not going to say on any particular given issue. He would know the personalities of the reporters, he would know who he would expect certain questions to come from, who he'd call on. There is an incredible degree of management that goes on and what people don't see is actually the level of involvement advisers have before and after any kind of stories written. So as soon as you write something that a politician doesn't like, you are besieged with, with you know, text messages and you know, emails. and You do radio, you do 6PR here, and while you're on the radio, if you don't put your phone away, you'll see messages yeah. from government media yep. advisors correcting everything that you've said and suggesting ways you could rephrase it. That's particularly helpful when it happens live on yeah, television. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. yeah. It, ha it happened, it, you know, it's a closed shop here, I'm sure this won't go any further, but it happened the other day. I mean, <laughs> Gareth Parker was interviewing Lisa Harvey, the opposition leader. Mm -hmm. It was off the back of their own, that, that story about their own polling, which showed that, you know, she was resonating with women voters and all that sort of stuff. So you had her on, and as he was trying to conduct the interview, his phone was just not stopping with people inside the Premier's office. Three different people inside government were sending him messages about, well, that's bullshit, ask her this. Like, I'm serious, that's two weeks ago. That's um, also why I never take my phone on to set on Insiders, because I would rather save up all the gratuitous So, so does it happen over there? I mean, is this... <laughs> yeah, so does it happen? Does that happen oh, all the time? Yeah, yeah all okay. the time. I, I tell you what, there's one absolute guaranteed way to stop it, and that is when you get a message like that, you say, well, I've just had a message here from exactly. Person X from the Premier's office, and he reckons this. What do listeners think about that? And that you wouldn't have people talk to you for very long, though, if you did that all the time. No, but that's a blessing. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, because I'm noticing it now as we sort of, where are we, 15 months, 16 months away from an election, and we're seeing that the government is starting to gear up already and starting to want to make sure that the right sort of messages are there about Lisa Harvey, you know, that she failed with TAFE and she's done this and that, and, they're, you know, they're starting social media campaigns already on that sort of stuff. So it, it is fascinating for me to think, well... Is this because they're already nervous 15 months out from the next election as to how this is going to land? Because I can't figure out why a broadcaster like Gareth Parker would be getting message upon message. He showed me. I mean, there were, there were 20 messages during the course of a 12, 15-minute interview. It was extraordinary. Talking about an election campaign, it is interesting, you know, during the federal election campaign that we had in May, you know, I had both sides angry at me every day for the coverage that we had, saying we were biased one way or biased the other way. And then there actually was an analysis of each of the papers throughout the election campaign. And the West Australian was seen to be one of the most balanced newspapers out of all of them. So the way that I approach it now is if they're both angry at me, I'm doing a good job. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> if they're, if they're it, both complaining, well then and I've done a, my job. a wonderful thing when you've got someone who's paid by a political party to control the media accusing you of bias? Yeah. 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 Andrea, ECU lecturer, extraordinaire. Have you guys got any advice for my younger journalists who are perhaps just coming into this world, who, for whom getting a, a text or a call back from a comms person who represents a politician can be quite a frightening thing? I mean, I would probably just turn it off or give it the attention that it deserved, which would be none. But any advice for the younger journalists? Yeah, refer it up. So if someone's really bullying one of my journalists, I take it on. And then they don't really pull that stunt. 
And just know, you know, be confident in the story that you've written. Know your facts and know that you have done a good job. And also, sometimes if you have made a mistake, then, you know, say, sure, I'll change it, no problems. Because we are all human and sometimes we do make mistakes and that's fine. But, you know, stand your ground and and it's their job to try and craft the story in the way that they want it to be. So, you know, if you're confident in the fact that you have done the right thing and been balanced, then stand your ground. And probably also don't start from a preconceived position of defensiveness. So listen to what their arguments are. And if there's anything in those arguments that maybe you hadn't thought of or maybe you need to look into further, say, look, I'm going to go away and think about that, I'll get back to you, and then come back with a considered response. And when you are wrong, say, you know, I was wrong. I, I think uh, there's... One, one thing, just on that too, another thing you probably face that my younger journalists have, a, have difficulty dealing with is a lot of media advisors are on social media and in WA they do this thing where they make passive, aggressive comments about your stories and don't name you. I've had a couple of very upset younger journos about this. They don't know how to deal with that because they're not complaining to you but they're putting out into the world. They've got positions of authority and influence criticising your stories and so that's, that's something to watch and, if you can, ignore because nobody cares what a media advisor says. Most people don't care what a politician says. But they do it to try and alter your perception of what you've written or... Or make you um, tread carefully next time. You know, it's just yeah. a... And rattle you. They do it yeah, to that's rattle right. you. Yeah, that's right. And if you're like me, who doesn't care what anybody really says about me, then you can ignore it and then mute them and move on because who cares what they say on social media? But you're going to face that. It makes me angry when I've got younger journalists who are upset by that. I, sort of, I have a view that some of those staffers just shouldn't do it. I mean, they shouldn't be on it, full stop, you know... It, they, they do their job in a professional way, but once they start stepping over the mark and, and using social media to try and, you know, intimidate someone, it's, it's a bad look, and, and their bosses should be pulling them up on it. Um, Pete, did you have a question? Can I get you to address the question of balance? Because balance is a... Those of us who teach critical theory have a different view of balance, and balance is something that the anti-environmentalist lobby often throws at you guys, why don't you have some balance? So what does balance mean? How should a trainee journalist begin to think about the idea of balance beyond just giving equal number of words to Liberals and Labor? I think it's making sure that you present both sides of the story. So, you know, whether it's in one particular story or you do a multitude of stories that present both sides of the story on a particular issue, I think that's what balance means to me. I think you present different viewpoints and different sides of stories, but there's also false balance, so not where there isn't another side of the story. So, to my mind, climate science is one of those things. There's variation, there's different scientific opinion, but the vast bulk of scientific opinion accepts that global heating is occurring. I don't think balance means that I have to find a sceptic every time I'm reporting on climate science. It means if someone comes forward and challenges or comes up with a new point of view, you interrogate that. And that happened recently. A fellow called Andrew Pittman gave a speech where he was talking about the link between climate change and drought. And it was reported that he said there was no link. And I thought, looked at that and thought, well, he's a credible scientist and that's 
not my understanding. It's not what we've reported before. I really need someone to go and check that out because if that is what he's saying, we really should report it. He's a credible scientist and that wasn't our previous understanding. When we went and interrogated it, what he was saying was there was no direct link, but there were linkages. So we reported in full what he was saying. But I felt like, okay, what he was being reported as saying challenged my view. I need to go and look at that. I need to look into that. That's balance, but not just sort of finding a 0.01% climate sceptic view every time you write about climate science. The, other, the thing for me now back in TV is it had an interesting one last week where we'd done a story about a subdivision that's, you know, they're hoping to get up in the hills, you know, an extreme fire zone. The satellite's pushing North Stoneville on behalf of the Anglican Church that owned the land and so on, right? So, you know, I worked on it for a couple of weeks and then went to Nigel Satterley direct and asked if we could do a sit-down. He initially said, yes, no problem, we'll do it. Then he pulled out of it. Then we go to where, just before we go to where, they send us a three-page statement, right? Three pages. Now, it's television. I've got about a minute 40, you know? So you talk about how am I to express the balance that the Satterley group or the church would see as important in that story? Through a three... I've got people on camera prepared to talk to me, but I don't have the people that are being criticised prepared to talk to me. So, of course, we went to air. We did as much as we could with a graphic which showed, you know, what they had to say and they've complained about the imbalance. And I've just gone back and said, you had your opportunity to come on camera and address it just like everyone else had. You didn't. To me, as a television journalist, you've already lost your ability to get as much balance in the story as you can because you've played the game of take a three-page statement and make something of it. That's an issue for us, a real issue in TV in terms of balance. You need that other person on camera. Can I just throw yep. in a, a different, another perspective onto that as well? In, in Perth, we've got a really shrinking number of reporters who are covering stories. Part of the difficulty is that you wonder about balance across the entire media, not just with what I'm reporting or what our newsroom's reporting. So sometimes I look at stories and I think, right, okay, the West Australian are approaching this particular story in one particular way. And it's almost as though WA Today has to say to itself, well, do we need to cover this story in a way that does justice to another side of the story? And what I'm thinking about at the moment is actually the voluntary assisted dying debate that's going on. I don't think it's any secret that the West Australians editorialise very strongly in favour of that. And so as a newsroom, we've sat back and thought, well, this is legislation that actually is going to permit, that the government's introducing to permit the killing of individuals. So we need to apply actually heavy scrutiny to this legislation, not to the idea of whether this is a good thing one way or not, but actually the, the legislation that's before Parliament. And so we've copped a lot of criticism for not being on board with this great liberal idea that everyone should be, have access to voluntary assisted dying, whereas our approach is, well, actually, no, we're scrutinising this legislation. So I think it's sometimes important to go, right, how is an issue being treated by the entire media and how do we fit within that, that scope of things? I mean, you know, climate change is another point of view. I reckon a ripper at the moment, Lani might have a view on this as well, just quickly. A ripper at the moment is, and I've not been involved in the reporting on it or anything like that, but just as an observer, having worked at Seven West and now at Nine, is the Ben Robert Smith story. I mean, it's an extraordinary story as it sort of unfolds. And there's no doubt Nine have gone through 60 Minutes and Nick McKenzie and co, gone absolutely full on in relation to pointing out issues that they say about Ben, Robert, Smith and co. Seven West have, you know, decided that they, they're backing the guy and that they're to support. 
and that might be a legitimate editorial line as well because nothing's proven, nothing's... But the battle lines along that issue, as that plays out in coming months, whether he's charged by the AFP or whatever, is fascinating because I can... As a journal, I can sit there at nine now and think, Christ, if nine has got this wrong, how are you going to feel about that? I mean, you've gone after... Or a, vice versa. Or, or vice versa, because you've gone... I mean, you, you know, a decorated war hero who's put himself on the front line the way that he no doubt did, and if nine's got it wrong, I don't know how I wake up feeling about the defamation suit that's going to go his way, or, or you know, if you're at Seven West and you're thinking, crikey, we went on the side of Ben Robert Smith wholeheartedly. It's a fascinating... I don't know if you've been observing it the way I have. Yeah, it is a fascinating story. I think what also is interesting about the story is that the Inspector General of the Australian Defence Force, the report that's been, you know, the investigation in relation to this whole issue, that has been going on for a very long time. Mm, So, you know, I think what's also important to look at in this issue is the impact that people in the Defence Force establishment are saying that it's having on Special Forces and the SASR because it's been going on for such a long Mm. period Mm. of time. And, you know, we we talk about Ben Robert Smith and and whether or not whoever's got it right, but we also have to think about the impact on the people who are currently Mm. serving and the length of this investigation. I mean, it was just along the, what you said about how sometimes you, you, yeah. you sort of you make a decision, well, crikey, it's got all that. How about look at this mm. way? Sorry. When you look at the treatment across it, yeah. across both sides, it's balanced, maybe. Can I go to polling? Has it got no credibility anymore? Is it history? I mean, what, what's going to happen at the next sort of federal election before? Is anyone going to have the guts to sort of run a poll that says... We're going to, do, <laughs> we're going to start polling again, but differently in a little while. I think what went wrong last time was that... I think part of it was that there was a swing to the coalition very late in the campaign when Bill Shorten had kind of basically packed up stumps and thought he'd won. But I think the biggest thing that went wrong was that we were making assumptions about the 8 to 10% undecided vote, about what, where, how they would split and what they would do. And I think that cohort of voters is actually completely different now than it was even 10 years ago. That cohort of voters isn't just undecided. They're not sitting on the fence. They're like over in the next paddock. They are not interested. They're completely disengaged. They really don't care. They really haven't paid attention. And they just started to tune into their campaign in those final few days when Scott Morrison was really performing well and getting his message out. And I think the real mistake that polling made was making assumptions about that group of voters and we need to think about what we do. Like maybe we just take them out of the sample and look at the people who are telling us that they are paying attention and what they think because it's that cohort that I think really skewed the polls and made them so inaccurate. I think what was super interesting as well on election night is that we saw the exit poll from Channel 9 say that (laughs) Labor had won by however many seats and that was the exit poll, you know. So I think... It was spot on, not. um, not. They got that wrong. I don't think I was there. I think that (laughs) political parties are still going to use polling and are still using polling. Well, I think we need to too in that it's the only way that you can get even... But I think we have to put less store in it. We have to be more careful about margins of error. We need to be use it less as a race call and more just as an indicator. But it's like the only indicator you've got, so we still sort of need it. And I think there's got to be closer analysis. There's got to be more thoughtfulness done in relation to what exactly you're polling, who you're polling, when you're polling them, how you're polling them. I think there's going to be a lot of rethink about all of that. I, I remember the a beauty that... Tonight, I think it changed seven... I think seven west afterwards we stopped using at 
the time we we stopped using Reachtel after the we polled the Darling Range electorate prior to the by-election after Urban left and they had a resounding victory to Labor. And of course, it didn't happen that way. So what I find interesting is that we, as media organisations, we don't really sort of go and spend time with the polling companies that we're using. I mean, it took, what we found out about Reachtel after that was quite interesting. Yeah, I think we do now. <laughs> do, do, really? Is that happening now? Yeah. So it's a matter of going to meet the people that are doing this, seeing their operation and understanding it. I think it's been a good learning experience for everyone, really, because it will change come the next But election. do you think the public will trust them again? I mean, do you think the public will care when they see that the lead story on the news is that there's a swing, according to polls, there's a massive swing against, you know, the Libs at the next federal election? Do you think the public will? There'll probably be a lot more scepticism, and that's a good thing. All right. I want to talk about, given, you know, the whole right-to-know issue as well, people in Canberra, tell me whether or not what we've seen from the federal police, etc., in terms of the raids, is it already changed the game in terms of sources, leaks? You know, is it already sort of reflected now in what information might be coming through from sources and leaks? Are they more careful? Do they talk on the phone? Do they send emails? I mean, are we seeing that? I think people are definitely more cautious and, and, you know, especially in the current climate, don't necessarily want to talk to you as much because they don't want to be caught. They don't want to be you know, the whistleblower that goes to jail. I think there is much more caution at the moment. Yeah, I think it's had a chilling effect. I also think that it has the... It could possibly backfire on the government, even in terms of the government's own objectives, in that before there was this sort of climate, when you got a big national security story, if you weren't entirely sure about its ramifications or if you were worried that it might have a national security implication that you didn't fully understand, you would talk to the security agencies quietly to check that. And it was kind of understood that they couldn't stop you from publishing the story but they'd let you know if you were about to put your foot in something that you weren't fully understanding of. Well, who'd do that now? Who would do that now? And that surely is counterproductive, even from the point of view of the government and the objectives that they're trying to serve. So, you know, and I mean, from a journalistic point of view, the other thing that I find really galling is that there are these incredibly heavy-handed investigations into the leaks that the government doesn't like, and no investigation at all into the leaks, Mm. just as important from a national security point of view, that they do like, that serve their purposes. I mean, that's really dangerous. I'm finding sources are getting much better at using encrypted tools. So, you know, we often make ourselves available through, you know, secure methods and I think people are understanding how important it is and they're genuinely concerned about their legal vulnerability, particularly from some of these bigger national security or law enforcement agencies or even at the level of, you know, WA Police or, you know, Corruption Commission. So I think I'm noticing I'm getting a lot more contacts from people using... Things like you know Signal or Proton Mail or or some of the, um, the number of apps I have on my phone now <laughs> are ridiculous. You like telling war stories sometimes, but in all seriousness, I had a guy come to my house on Halloween night. Came to my house to tell me something because he didn't want to use his phone or computer or anything. He's he's from a federal world, and just turned up and yelled out trick or treat, and I let him in. And he, I mean, I knew him. He wasn't a complete stranger, but but was absolutely. <laughs> absolutely conscious of wanting to tell me something but not using any form of electronic 
hardware at all. So there you go, things have changed. I have people talk about Cold War rules. Because you know? the reality <laughs> is, even if you do use WhatsApp or an encrypted app, there is a lot of information that, you know, Facebook and various other, you know, organisations can see. They can still see, they might not be able to see the content of your message, but they can see how often you're communicating with someone. They can see the picture of who you're communicating with, the name of the group that you've set up. So there's still a lot of information that people can see. Yeah, metadata. Can anyone explain metadata? No, I'm only joking. George Brand is good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and, and also just, so on the, on the right to know stuff, just because I know it's going to get into after 12 o'clock, but, but just, I'll give you an example of WA, right? We ran a story a few weeks ago, it wasn't me, it was Michael Genovese, one of our reporters, who just ran a story because he'd received information from a person working in a disability justice centre. Now these are places, no one's complaining about the policy, these are places where people with a mental impairment are placed because they're not fit to plead, right? Simple. It came out after the case of a guy called Marlon Noble who'd been held in a prison for 10 years, he'd never pleaded to anything, it was a disgrace, outrageous. So these places have been created, but nevertheless they're, they're not without problems because the people in them can be dangerous. And there's one disability justice centre here in, in WA, in out Bennett Brookway, and there'd been umpteen assaults on staff, all sorts of issues from the one person in that disability justice centre who was being held there, assaults, sexual assaults, you name it. And so one person who couldn't get anywhere through government or couldn't get anywhere through union or anything like that decided to, to speak to a journalist. That prompted an injunction, the story that he ran prompted an injunction, which to this day prevents Macquarie Media, Community Newspaper Group, Seven West Media Group, Ten Network Holdings, Fairfax Media Group, Australian Broadcasting Corporation, from reporting on any events at that government building. Events. Not about identifying who's in there, but not reporting what takes place there. Now that injunction went down and not, well, only one media organisation decided to contest it. So it still stands to this day. So if you think for a minute that we don't have issues around, you know, closing down the flow of information because it's embarrassing the government, that is a stark example of right here, right now. And no matter how much you try to convince the Labor minister in charge of that, that's Stephen Dawson in charge of it, he won't bend. And so right now, if I went out and decided to report that there'd been a fire at the Bennetbrook Disability Justice Centre and that three people were evacuated, Unless that information has been raised in Parliament, it can't be recorded. If you think for a minute that we don't have suppression and control, that's a great example. You got anything for us? Now, Nathan, I know Nathan's got a prop. I've got a prop. He's so got a prop in his pocket. Forestfield Airport Link, so I think $1.2 billion project. PFAS has been discovered at it. The government's spending hundreds of millions of dollars trying to clean it up. This is a document that was released to me when I was trying to report on it. And this is how it came. This is their uh, <laughs> three pages of this stuff. But doesn't it also, somebody in the public service yeah. considered that and had to sit there and do that? Like yeah. <laughs> Where's the title? It's, it's, it's titled Public Transport Authority Briefing Note for the Minister for Transport, <laughs> Forestfield Airport Link Project Budget Update. <laughs> so that's it. So... <laughs> So that's what, that's what we're up against. <laughs> yeah, it is getting more and more ridiculous. When I first moved to Canberra with the Australian newspaper in 2010, I was covering immigration at a time where it was a very contentious issue. You know, boats were crashing up against rocks. It was an awful time. And 
I would put in FOIs all the time and I would get FOIs back very similar to that. Mm. So for me, I feel like I've been, you know, dealing with this for a very long yeah. time, yeah. but it is getting worse. Well, it must be getting worse because, you know, journalists' houses are being searched and so on and so forth. From the point of view of being a political reporter, I mean, you know, sort of so we can uplift it a bit here. I mean, Lenore, you've been doing this a long time. What is it you love about it? Well, I don't do it anymore. I haven't done it for the last three years, but before that I did it for about 33 years and it was the only kind of journalism through that whole period that I ever wanted to do. I love the intersection of really complicated policy issues that matter to people, that are going to change people's lives and really complicated politics. And I think the real key to political reporting is balancing those things. I think one of the dangers of shrinking newsrooms is that there are fewer people with policy expertise and the easiest thing to do is to report the horse race or the factional intrigue or the whatever. And that's important. That's part of what we do. But probably more important to our readers is how that policy impacts on their lives, what it's going to do, what it really means. I think the other thing that's happening over time is there's less corporate memory. Like, there's people are newer. There's, you know, fewer people who've been reporting politics for a really long time. And the stories come around and around and you really need to sort of understand what happened, you know, through previous decades. But what I love about it is the fact that those decisions are really important to people and it's your job to really make those stories understandable and relevant to readers. It was, I mean, it was the greatest thing to have done with for 33 years. Marnie, what do you sort of get out of dealing with those Canberra politicians on yeah, a daily I, basis? I agree with what she said, but I also love the diversity. I love that I can cover a variety of different issues and I like the chessboard of getting a story that I think is different in you know, other areas of journalism. You know, you have to pull many different levers to get the exclusive story that you might have been chasing for two weeks or two months, and I think that that is different to other areas of journalism. And that's the side that people don't see. I mean, the public have no idea what sort of goes on behind the scenes in order to try and progress the story to, or, you know, to trick someone into actually sort of, you know, giving you the story or whatever the case may be. They don't Convince see that. Them. There's a lot Convince of it. <laughs> Maybe not the right word, but you know what I mean. But there is a lot of that that goes on in the background. And I like the fact that the reporting that we do can make a difference in people's lives. So, yeah, I, I really... That's, I guess that. that the only other thing I've done other than being an editor now and being a political reporter was a stint as a foreign correspondent. And ultimately, <laughs> I didn't find that satisfying because you were always a voyeur looking in. You never influenced the debate. Being the AFR's correspondent in Europe, you know, you didn't... You were just interpreting news for an Australian audience and I really like to be in a position where the scoop you bring or the analysis you write might actually have an impact on things. Nathan, what do you get out of being uh, here in little old WA? Look, I, I really enjoy working in a very dedicated team looking to get that thrill of breaking a story that's important and then watching everybody else rush around after it if you've done a good job and no one else has it. Politics in particular, I do like the idea of holding governments to account. I have seen how they operate behind the scenes and... You know, now from the position where I am, I, li I like the idea of exposing the things they would rather you guys not know about. Do you think that makes you a better political journalist, having seen how it works behind the scenes? Do you think it's, it's easier for you to get, you know, things out of the government because you know 
what questions to ask when? I probably get duped less than you know people who haven't done it, maybe, or you know younger journos who aren't across the tricks. So I do know the tricks. I can frustrate them terribly, but probably I wouldn't. I don't know if it makes me a better reporter. I reckon I might get to things a bit quicker. And just for, I've got some students here, of course. Political reporting going forward, Lenore and everyone. I mean. I know we, you know, I'm 53 and, you know, we've been there, done that, and you sort of start talking down where the industry's going, you tend to sort of fall into that sort of pattern of saying, you know, we're, as an industry we're in trouble and so on and so forth. How do we, what do we say to students that have, you know, gone and spent three years of their life studying and learning uh, what they can through university before they enter the workforce? Where is the future? The job we're doing is as important as it ever was. The major companies are figuring out the business model in different ways, but you know, I get the feeling that it's kind of stabilising. People are finding different paths through and it's just a matter of telling the stories in new and different ways and organising our newsrooms in new and different ways but excellent journalism isn't going anywhere. I think there is always going to be a need for good quality journalism and I think that if you write stories that matter and make a difference in people's lives, then I think that there will always be a place for that. People talk about newspapers dying or the, you know, the change in our industry, but I honestly do believe that there will always be a place for quality journalism. So The, the, the reality is there won't be as many jobs. I mean, that's undeniable. But, you know, the challenge is still there and if two of you have got work straight out of university, that's a, that's a good sign. Nathan, why, why, did you, why did you sort of... OK, you left, yep. you left being a spin doctor and a master of the dark arts. So I, after that, I, I, worked in, <laughs> I worked in comms for a while, I did a little bit of PR and I got really bored. So, so you realised where the right was, where the, where, you know, where yeah, the yeah. high moral ground yeah, was well, eventually. You know, I, I, I'm, so, I'm not in it for the money, that's for sure. You know, I... I enjoy waking up every day and actually having a crack at making some little difference. But look, it is an all black. I mean, the nine publishing mastheads around the country employed 20 cadets last year, last week, I think, or they've just announced that they've all been given permanent positions, or many of them have been given permanent positions. So I work with a lot of great, talented young journalists who are you know, anywhere from like just out of uni to a few years out to you know, beginning long careers. In many ways, I don't think it's as bleak as people make out sometimes. Lenore, you've alluded to the importance of having diversity in newsrooms, particularly with respect to political reporting. What can be done to improve this, particularly given that some students who come from remote areas or who have a family to look after or who are working full-time can't really afford to do the sort of work experience necessary to get work in this industry? Yeah, it's an excellent question and it's one we've been grappling with. We had a few sort of entry-level jobs recently and amazing applications, but not much diversity. You know, lots of very, very bright, usually private school-educated young graduates who'd all edited the uni newspaper. Like, they were all very similar. And so I started to think about, well, how do I get people into the newsroom who are a bit different from that? And the family of a journalist who I respected very much called Adele Horan, she used to write welfare kind of articles for the Fairfax papers, wanted to set up some sort of prize in her memory and they've set up a paid internship. So at The Guardian we have a rule that we can't take an unpaid intern for more than 20 days because otherwise it's sort of exploitative. And we're limited in how many interns we can take anyway just because of resources to give people you know, a, a sufficiently good experience. But this prize will allow us to offer a paid internship for a longer duration to a student 
and I was we just offered it to a young Muslim woman from Western Sydney. And what really struck me in the interview was that she said, until year 12, she had felt like the media was kind of the enemy because of the way she perceived the Islamic community to have been reported on. And then a teacher said to her, you know, you could be a journalist. And she said it had never occurred to her that she could tell the story. And now she's a star student, like she's a star of the course and doing incredibly well. But I think that's what we've got to overcome. We've got to start earlier to convince people who might not see journalism as being something they could possibly do, that yes, it is, and yes, they're needed in newsrooms. Just uh, in general, it gets back to the issue of balance. And I'm just wondering how the panel would respond to at least what I see as being newspapers in particular, but publishers in general, descending into a sort of tribalism. They speak to one constituency only. And you've only got to look at the comments below each article, so it contributes this whole echo chamber kind of experience. And also it is reflected in the stories they choose to focus on. It's not just about what they say in a story, it's the fact that they focus on this particular topic only and not that one. And at times you can see and journalism swaying from journalism to advocacy. And I'll just wonder about where you sit on the ethics of that. Have you got an example? And I'm, I'm asking you that because, you yeah. know, then I'll get a sense of... Well, uh, the, way, the way I would describe it generally is that I see the two bookends of Australian journalism right now as on one side you've got The Guardian and on the other side you've got The Australian. And they both infuriate me equally in the way that they focus on particular issues and the way that they focus on the kind of lines they run on them. So I'll leave it at that, uh, but I'd be interested to see how you respond. So I don't see us as a bookend to the Australian and I don't want to be somehow a sort of left version and the Australian a right version and I don't think that we are. I don't know what issues you find infuriating. We do set an editorial direction so I guess it, maybe one of them might be climate change but that's quite a deliberate choice on our part to run a lot of stories about climate change because we think that it is an incredibly critical issue that impacts on you know, most aspects of life and will do so increasingly. But in the reporting on climate change, we try to do that fairly and we try to, and I think we do, separate opinion from news. And I gave an example earlier of a news story which I thought might well challenge stuff that we'd written earlier, but I wanted to commission it anyway because we should challenge what we think. If the evidence changes, we should change our minds. So, I mean you're entitled to your perception or the way that you see things. I very much do not want to become a left of centre echo chamber at all. That's not the aim, that's not the editorial direction. And I agree, I think you're entitled to your opinion and if, that is, if that's how you see it, then that's obviously how you see it. But I think if you look at our paper today, well, we've got a story on Sue Lyons saying that her granddaughter experiences racism and what needs to be done about that. We've got a story about domestic violence. We've got a story about the most underprivileged school in Perth. You know, I think that there is diversity. It's interesting to hear your viewpoint and that you think that there's, you know, not in some sections of the media, but I would disagree with that. I mean, is it what your, your point? I mean, is there anything new about that perception? I mean, if you go look, look at the UK press, I mean, there's the right, there's the left, there's the Times, there's the Sun. I'm going to do something really dangerous now because I, I can see we've got a member of parliament sitting in our audience. 
From your point of view, Shane, I just thought I'd offer you the opportunity to sort of say how you feel as a Member of Parliament the media is going right now, you know, in Western Australia. From your perspective, what have you see of it? Well, I'm a regional Member of Parliament, so I just happened to be in town this morning and thought I'd come along. The problem, I guess, that we face in regional areas is the loss of media coverage to regions and and in that respect, the ABC still plays a very important role, although they obviously have a, a lot less resources devoted to regional WA than they do in, in Sydney. But at least there is a voice there and there's a professional team of journalists located within each of the regions. So I suppose for regional people, there is that, that issue of how do you, you know, how do you get a, a topic on the regional agenda, on the, on the statewide or the national agenda, until it becomes a, you know, a disaster and the case of the drought situation in parts of Western Australia even, which has yep. been largely unreported because it's been soaked up by the concentration of media in other parts of the state or the other parts of the nation. But I suppose that, that would be my major concern. It hasn't been broached here, but you know, just those outstanding small newspapers we used to have, like the Argus, various advocates throughout the wheat belt, they've all disappeared over the and last And they're all being centralised, you know, they're being centralised, perhaps being run from a Perth office to sort of represent people in the country and, you know, yeah, organisations like GWN. Still going strong. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> GWN, I mean, it's, it's, GWN pulled out of Kalgoorlie. I mean, you know, one of the financial economic hubs of, of our state. They've got no commercial TV arm there at this point in time, which I found staggering when that happened, given it's a big news town. So I just thought I'd give you the opportunity to sort of have you say. Anyone want to comment on that issue about regional Australia? I mean, I think it's one of the biggest news deserts in Australia is regional and local government reporting. I think the Public Interest Journalism Initiative did a survey that found that more than a third of local government areas in Australia have no reporting at all. Nobody goes to local council. And, I mean, that's the level of government that people interact with the most. That's the front line of... And that's also the place where... There's the greatest, I think, greatest potential for corruption. You know, they're the people that do development applications and rezoning and whatever else. And there's just whole news deserts. I think it is something that we do need to invest more in because, you know, it's what people want to know about on the ground is what's happening in their town. A great thing that Seven West have done is bringing some of the regional reporting that goes on in those regions into the main newspaper of the day. I think that was an extremely smart move to utilise the resources that have perhaps been ignored and depleted over the years. Thanks very much for everyone for coming. I hope you got something out of it. I'd like to, of course, thank Barney, Lenore and Nathan for being part of it. <laughs>